Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot. This is one of our special bonus episodes, and I am so excited to have Kimra with us today. Kimra is an entrepreneur turned activist, and that is the entire bio I got. So I am going to invite Kimra right now to give us a little more information. Hi, everyone uh, who's listening. Thank you so much for having me on, Leela. Um, yeah, I am in an, a entrepreneur turned activist. Um, I mean, I kind of always been an entrepreneur like my whole life, but I've also been an activist my whole life too. So um, always have that driven spirit, I guess, so to speak. Um, But I mostly work uh, very heavily in the reproductive justice space. Um, I'm a certified abortion doula and I support people who live in states with restricted access to get access to um, abortion care and all of the support that they need. Um, And then I also do a political... um, commentary on Twitch. Um, That's my main platform where I create content currently. And I live stream about pretty much all things social justice, intersectionality. We talk a lot of anti-racism stuff. Um, And of course, we talk about reproductive justice and reproductive rights as well. So you didn't even have a bio written. I, I usually ask my guests for like a bio and a headshot. You didn't even have a bio how did you, how did you get this far in without a bio? <laughs> yeah, so about a year ago in the state of Idaho, um, the governor Brad Little signed a six week abortion ban, banning all abortions after six weeks. And one of my friends, Bessie, hit me up and said. I want to do a protest. I said, damn straight, we're doing a protest. So (laughs) that is kind of what put um, the collective that I run, which is a mutual aid called Idaho Abortion Rights together. Um, That was kind of like the initial like launching point for it. Um, I had already wanted to become an abortion doula. I actually had already like, you know, took my name on like the Instagram of like an abortion doula like page, but I hadn't been like active in that because my, um, my ex-boyfriend, um, he who was my boyfriend at the time, he was very much like against me doing that type of work. He was like, Oh, no one's going to pay you all that sort of stuff. And so I didn't end up like going with it at the time. Um, and then kind of things just kind of fell into my lap, I guess, so to speak of like, it was just the right timing, um, for everything. And I am, it's it's a lot of work, but um, it's I'm very grateful that I have the skills that I have from owning previous businesses that have been able to cross over um, into my activism work and really been able to make it so that we can serve a, a large amount of people. So what does an abortion doula do? Um, it depends on where they are. Um, myself, for instance, because I help people that are in restricted states, meaning they might be um, having an abortion illegally, use, utilizing abortion pills, um, which is most typically the case. And I support them through secure um, texting and calling and video apps. Um, sometimes it's supporting them and just making the decision 
what, you know, to have an abortion or not. Some people are, are conflicted on that decision. And so counseling them in that way. Other times it's more helping them get the literal access. So like practical support, helping them book their appointments, helping them find the funds in order to cover the cost of the abortion. And then quite a lot of the times I'm helping them throughout the whole process. So they're texting me like, hey, like I, I just took my first medication. Like what can I expect from this? And I'm letting them know like here are the symptoms, you know, go get an ibuprofen, you know, like, like, et cetera. And like letting them know like the other things that they um, might need during their abortion. Um, and then helping them with aftercare as well. So aftercare can look anything from like giving them recommendations to the best hotlines. Uh, you know, if there's someone who has a practicing faith, there's different hotlines for people depending on their practicing faith that they may want to talk about. Um, if someone may be grieving or, or needing other mental health support, I send them to the resources depending on, you know, where they live. Um, and so, um, and, and it's supporting them, you know, afterwards as well. So if they need some phone calls, if they need to just text, if they need to video chat with me and cry, you know, anything that they need is, is what I do to support them. Um, different abortion doulas in other states where abortion is legal, um, there's a few different ways abortion doulas help. Some actually volunteer and support people at the actual clinic who are having procedural abortions. Um, and they give emotional support, give them information, help them feel comforted. Um, this is also pretty common, say, if someone is a non-English speaker um, to kind of help guide them through the process. Oftentimes, there's abortion doulas that speak multiple languages to help them through. Um, and usually in those sorts of situations, they don't help a person with aftercare. So sometimes there's different abortion doulas in the communities that will help people, um, you know, get aftercare, get resources and things of that nature. Um, um, and some abortion doulas actually go to people's homes. So someone may be doing a self-managed abortion with abortion pills that they may be ordered online um, or got through other distributors. And um, sometimes an abortion doula is actually at the house with you while you're going through your abortion. Um, currently, um, I don't do that in, in the home as of right now, um, since most of the people I help are in restricted states. And so I'm really not able to, to do that. Um, but there's nothing illegal about tech and being on the phone with people, right? So, you know, so I'm able to get around that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so did you decide to become an abortion doula because kind of because of, of the political situation or was this something that you'd been thinking about for a while and then the political situation kind of kicked your butt or... <laughs> Um, um, I would say, I guess a little bit of both. So when I had my abortion in, what was it? 2000 and I can't remember the year, but it was about four or five years ago. Um, when I had my abortion, I was living in the, in New York city and I was able to get you know, relatively easy access. You know, they have a lot of, you know, Planned Parenthoods around. You just like make an appointment, go in and ta-da, you know, you're kind of good to go. Like it's it's relatively easy um, to do that mm. there. But I really needed the emotional support at the time. And I had searched up abortion doula because I was like, is that even a thing? And I did find one woman in New York City who was an abortion doula and you can actually pay her to, to help support you. Um, but she was like completely booked up doing birth doula stuff. So, um, mm -hmm. so I wasn't able to, um, you know, find an abortion doula. However, um, one of my really good friends was able to support me. One of my other friends let me like do the whole process at her apartment and everything. So I was really lucky. I got to have some support. Um, I have three 
three kids. And so I was kind of like, I didn't know what the abortion was going to be like. They, you know, they give you a pill at the clinic and then they give you more pills to take at home. And I'm like, I don't know how bad this is going to be. I don't want to scare my kids. Right. right? So um, I was pretty lucky on being able to, you know, have a nanny who stayed with my kids and stuff. And so financially I was able to get some of that support I needed, but obviously not everybody is like that. And I was just like, wow, this is really like sad that there aren't people around that can help people through this process. Like a lot of people have abortions and, and there's nobody really helping with the emotional support. And, and the studies show that around 10% of people, you know, struggle with like grieving and like shame afterwards. I mean, we have a lot of shame in our society about abortion in general, especially if people are raised religious and there's just a lot, a lot of that extra support. And so so, um, you know, I have been trauma certified um, as because I was a business coach for so many years and I ended up becoming trauma certified because, you know, most of my clients had experienced a lot of trauma. <laughs> I needed to make sure I knew right. how to support them. Um, and so going through that myself, I was just like, what the heck? This is like, how is there not more um, like emotional support, more community support, right? And that, you know, I ended up moving um, to Idaho. And um, and when I mo- first moved to Idaho, I ended up going to a retreat in California. So I'd never been on like a spiritual retreat. I, I'm very cautious about who I connect with spiritually. Like I'm like maybe overly cautious, but I'm kind of, I'm just weird about it. Cause I'm like, I don't want to be part of no cult or something. Right. So I'm a little bit weird about it. And so one of my friends was hosting a retreat and I went to California and they had a tobacco ceremony. And during this tobacco ceremony, of course, I was vomiting. Duh, that happens a lot. Um, but I was hallucinating. And I was like, what is going on? And I was just like laying on the ground. And then all of these grandmothers surrounded me. And they weren't my grandmothers. They were everybody's, like the whole world's grandmothers, right? They were speaking multiple languages. And what they told me was that my purpose on the planet was to heal people's wombs. That was my purpose. So I'm like, well, now I know my purpose. This is great. You know, so once I woke up from <laughs> it that. It's nice when like the universe makes it super clear. Yeah, like here, let us just hand you, you know, sort of Vanna White style here. Here's your sign. It's a neon. Yeah. It was very blatant. I was like, okay, great. And I, I told my friend um, who was running the retreat, you know, what it, what had happened. And, and, and I told her, I said, well, I had been toying around with this idea of becoming an abortion doula. Like I'd always been like, I'm a birth junkie. Okay. Like, if there was a zombie apocalypse, I'd be the one delivering babies, okay? Like, I am super big birth junkie. Like, I have read all the books, done the natural births. Like, I mean, I, I'm, like, all about that stuff. Um, and I had always wanted to become a birth doula. I said, I used to tell people, I said, yeah, once my kids get older and I have more time, I, I definitely want to train to become a birth doula. But once I went through the abortion myself and, like, there wasn't that extra support, I was like, whoa, maybe abortion doula is a thing. And I had told my friend... I I said, you know, I've been already toying around with that idea. And then the universe gives me this big sign that was like real, real loud, like very blatant type of sign. And so she's like, oh, well, open up your phone, make an Instagram account now with like an abortion do the name, which I did. Um, and she was like, yeah, like just, just go for it. Right. And mm-hmm. then I went back to Idaho and my boyfriend at the time who was very abusive and huge jerk, um, he was like, no, no one would want that. Like that's stupid. No one can afford to pay you for that. And was just a huge naysayer. So, of it. so I kind of just, he's an ex. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, which is the reason, one of the reasons he's an ex. But yeah, like he, he was very against me wanting to help people um, mm-hmm. get access. So um, after him and I broke up, I was just like, well, I'm helping people anyway. And to me, it wasn't about the money because I don't get paid to be an abortion doula. 
all these people asking me for help don't have money, right? I don't get paid. I just yeah. do this as a community service to to serve my community and to ensure that people are getting the help that they need. Um, people could donate money to me, I guess, but nobody has, you know, because they are they they if they need an abortion they can't afford <laughs> to get to pay for extra help so so it is something where a lot of abortion doulas actually aren't paid a lot of them are volunteer type of roles in in the community and i hope that over time there'll be a lot more people um, like me around the country, everywhere, you know, I, every country, you know, where people can support people um, to get the help and the resources that they need, um, whether it's before, during, and, a- and after an abortion. Yeah, that, I mean, I would love to see us live in a world where everybody can just be more informed, like where every, just everybody knows how this works. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what to expect, where it's just part of, it's like in the water, in the air. So imagine a world that has the kind of justice that you want for reproductive access? Mm-hmm. The world that I see would be not only people like getting access to the care they need, but being able to make really strong decisions on whether they would like to have kids, having a healthy and safe environment for these kids to be raised Um, because reproductive justice goes farther than just access, right? A lot of people make the decision to have an abortion because of funds. They just can't afford to live. And, you know, like we live in a society where the economy is in this space where people have to have multiple jobs just to pay rent. And so, Reproductive justice, yeah, I absolutely, I want birth control to be free. I want every pharmacy to have abortion pills. I want every OBGYN to legally be able to perform abortion care. You know, I want it to be completely legal across the whole country where we have reproductive rights and and, and access to that it. That was easy true access. for just a minute. <laughs> yeah, like clinics everywhere where people can actually get to clinics. People shouldn't have mm-hmm. to go two hours drive to get to a clinic. They should be able to get this access anywhere. And so that would be the end all dream would be incredible. But a lot of this goes into being able to feed our families, being able to house our families, being able to have our kids in a safe school where they're not being harmed or have potential threats of gun violence, like being able to have it so that we're not concerned about our our kids being harmed by others, Um, you know, where there's like real justice system in in place that can actually hold people accountable who are harming children, families, um, where they take domestic violence seriously. You know, that's something that really ties together in the abortion space because a lot of people have abortions because they actually don't want their partner to harm the baby. And 25% of pregnant people do get physically harmed during their pregnancy, right? That's a very high number. And a lot of people... Extraordinarily high number. Yeah. And a lot of politicians don't want to talk about this. Like, Like my first job was at a domestic violence center and every day there were women coming in with bruises on them who were visibly pregnant, you know? And I was like 18 years old, like, what? Like, like it, it, it is so astronomically high. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. But a lot of people choose to have an abortion because they don't want the baby to be harmed. Right? That's a okay. real reality. 
It is. So let's pivot a little. You kind of brushed across the economic access, financial security piece of this, but it's such a huge part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Finance, financial security, access to money it is so tied into independence in our mm-hmm. in our culture. So what let's let's start with this. What do you do for money? Because you're not doing abortion do this stuff for money. Um so currently my Twitch stream is my is one of my ways that I'm making money. My other way is that I still have a few business coaching clients. So I've pretty much left the business coaching and marketing industry, but I have a few clients, so that helps cover the bills for the most part. Um, but um, Twitch will probably be my primary way. I do have my podcast is going to relaunch, so I'm hopefully getting some, like some like sponsorships and things like that. Um, I'm already sponsored by like a few like uh, sex toy companies and and things mm-hmm. like of that nature. Um, so hopefully getting some more sponsorships, and you know that's in in my YouTube channel as well. Um, I do make some money from from when I post videos and stuff there. So um, kind of just little trinkles of money coming in. Um, but I don't really sell any like, you know, products or courses or programs right now. Um, I'm kind of just starting anew, I guess. I'm almost like starting fresh. Um, and I want to be able to create something where I still have enough time to serve people in the abortion doula capacity. You know, so if I'm, you know, working like 25 hours a week on something and able to make a full-time living doing that, and then on the side, be able to continue doing the abortion doula work. Um, so, so yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> financially. Um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm making a buy, um, right now, which is much different than what used to be. Um, you know, I used to have a multiple seven figure company. I went through a divorce. Like I had to let go of my whole team. I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole fiasco. So I ended up losing my, my company. Um, but, um, you know, that's led to just a different path, you know, like I don't really, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't really, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I regret this or regret that or whatever. You know, I really am more focused on like where my future is and how I can continue making this world a better place for, for everybody and and for my children's future as well. You know, like, like they're going to be here on this planet. And so, yeah, economics is like, it's kind of hard when you're an activist. I think a lot of people, almost see activists as martyrs in a way, which is very Mm -hmm. different than say like inside of different cultures where they kind of take care of the people who are activists. Um, And culture doesn't care of anybody. Our our culture broadly, like there are subcultures that do, but broadly like the dominant North American culture does not. Yeah. Like in places like South America, people who do the work that I'm doing, they have their rent paid. They have a home. Their food is covered. Like their bills are covered by their communities. And so we don't really, activists in the United States don't really get that type of support. And right. so, um, it's, it's a little bit different. So, um, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. Um, I plan on doing a call out to my community specifically to be like, yo, can y'all fund me? Uh, you know, like fund Kimra and the stuff Kimra's doing sort of thing. I just haven't done that yet, but we'll see what happens with that. Um, but, you know, the main way people can support me is, um, you know, donating $5 a month to me on Twitch. Um, that's like the primary way that people, you know, can help support me um, while I do my Twitch streams talking about all the things, you know, politics and all the things mm-hmm. intersectionality um, there. So, so what do you think is available to most people? Let's say the people that, that you're working with the, in the abortion doula space, 
in terms of building their financial stability or their economic access, like what, because, because some of us have communities that will help to fund our work, but mm-hmm. a lot of us do not have communities often because nobody that we know has any money either. <laughs> yep. And so, so the question is like, how do we, yes, of course, in an ideal world, it would just, people would just do that. But meanwhile, we all have to eat and pay rent. So, so what do you think is available? I know you used to be a business coach, so. Yeah. Well, I think a big part of it is, is if we have enough people who are abortion doulas, it will spread the work. And so if there's hundreds of abortion doulas in like one county, some of them might only be supporting one person a week or, or less. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and be able to have that time so they can still, you know, work a, you know, full-time job and then be able to, you know, support a person on the side. So the more people who are trained and understand, um, the abortion doula work, which a lot of the information can be found online. I mean, I took a certification, but a lot of people who are helping others did not take certifications. They just educated themselves through everything they found online. Um, you know, the more people that we have, the better it is. Like I tell people, like the knowledge is really what's power. And I host um, abortion pill workshops and train people like how to support, uh, say, a friend that's going through it. So mm-hmm. it really doesn't have to be like, oh, you're an abortion doula and that's like your gig. It can be like, oh, I know a lot about abortions and if my friend needs help, I can help them. Really? Mm-hmm. And I call that like abortion homies. Like I have like a whole series on my YouTube channel that I'm creating that's like abortion homies. And we have these like little homies that we had illustrated because I was all about the little homies when I was like a kid. Um, and um, and yeah, so it's it's more about, um, you know, making sure the communities understand things. So then that way they mm-hmm. can help their friend. They can help their neighbor through the abortion process. And that's not all put on just the few people that are like the trained or certified people because abortion pills are safe. All you have to do is know the few things to watch out for in case someone needs to go to the hospital, but it's extremely rare anybody ever needs to go to the hospital. So a lot of people can actually help. And so the more the knowledge is spread, like there's people who have gone through um, my abortion pill training who have helped already four or five friends go through an abortion. Like they didn't need to be certified or, or anything like that. They were able to help them order the pills online and be able to give them information and, and support them through it. And everybody's like, wow, I was like really grateful for that, you know? And so I'm like, the more people that just have knowledge about abortion pills and the whole process, like the better, because that's how most people are getting access now. Most people aren't going to clinics because clinics are so far away from most people. Like, especially right. when half of the country is you know, illegal <laughs> to have an abortion right. that's too far away to go to clinics. So most people are getting them as abortion pills. So the more people are educated on that, like there's there's websites that have free courses, like plancpills.org has free courses on there, like free training. You can go and watch all the content and learn everything that you can about abortion pills. And then that way you're able to help a friend do that. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is that it's mostly about community education and about um, almost deprofessionalizing the work. Yep. And spreading it out. Yeah. And anybody that like, because a lot of my friends are birth doulas and several of them had been trained in doing abortion doula work, but it was mostly for the clinical setting, like for people that were getting the procedural um, abortion a lot of them didn't learn anything about the abortion pills. And so they have came to me where I'm actually hosting workshops 
for people who are actual medical professionals when I'm not a medical professional. Um, because I happen to have learned a lot of information that they didn't learn in their, in their trainings, which I find really funny because that same thing happened to me when I was teaching business and marketing, like people who had business degrees would come and join my program. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't even have a degree in business, but okay. So it's kind of like going back to the days of like the lay midwife, you know, Mm -hmm. where, you know, it used to be where they didn't even go to nursing school. It was just information that was passed down, you know, like, like even like breast and like chest feeding that was like information that was passed down right and and this is kind of becoming that again and it kind of has to because we can't really um like like in the red states there's no way that they're going to be like yeah you're a board certified abortion doula like that's just not going to happen <laughs> in any of those states right like right. you know what i mean like you cuz you could be a board certified a birth doula in a lot of states you you like that's an actual profession you know like you can become you know, like a midwife, an actual profession, but, you know, but it's like, you can't become an, a board certified abortion doula. It's like not a thing, at least not as of right now, maybe in the future, crossing fingers, that would be amazing. Uh, because then like clinics could like pay you to help people through the whole thing. Um, you know, um, so crossing fingers, maybe one day, but as of right now, it kind of has to be almost like the lay midwife type of situation where it's information that's just passed down to others. And there are, um, collectives like in, um, in Mexico, um, Las Libras, um, they've been a collective that's been around for over 20 years that's been supporting people with abortion pill access. And they were doing all of that underground. And there's thousands of people that um, were helping others throughout Mexico um, over the years. And that organization, once things became legal, they began connecting with people in the United States and began training people in the United States because it became illegal in Mexico, but then it became illegal in America. And so they're a really amazing collective that's really supported um, the reproductive um, justice movement in the United States and, and kind of helping create these underground networks of people who distribute abortion pills and who are abortion doulas helping people through the process. So I know that you're focus is doing this work. Do you think that we just need to kind of give up legislatively or do you think we also need to be pushing on the political front? We do need to be pushing on the political front um, primarily because of the people that have health complications during pregnancy. Um, There's a lot of lawsuits that are starting up from, uh, particularly in Texas, um, that are starting up from, from from women who were pregnant and were denied care that was life-saving care. Um, And some of them were literally on their deathbed having sepsis before they were able to get treatment. Um, And so we still need to fight legislatively. We still need to fight politically um, in order to get our rights protected because what will end up happening is people like myself will end up in jail. You know, they'll just be like, oh, you're you're aiding and abetting. You're helping people. Boom, you're in jail. Um, In Texas, they're already trying to ban websites like my Idaho abortion rights website. They're already trying to ban websites that give people information about abortion pills. They're trying to take away even our First Amendment rights, our freedom of speech even. So this is going way deeper than just that. They're also doing a lot more um, digital surveillance of people that do um, abortion activism type of work as well. The FBI actually asked the the government for half a million dollars to be putting more surveillance on people that are abortion activists. So we still do need to be doing political and legislative pushback. Um, 
you know, but we also need to be taking care of our own communities as well. So doing that mutual aid, supporting each other, educating each other, which is a huge, huge one, educating, making sure all of the teenagers know how to prevent pregnancy. (laughs) That's a massive one, Um, especially for the state of Idaho, because they made an um, anti-abortion trafficking is what they've called it, abortion trafficking. They have decided that if a teenager goes across state lines to have an abortion and they don't have parental permission, anybody who helps them is technically a human trafficker and can go to prison for 15 years. So they're, you know, so making sure teenagers prevent pregnancy is an absolutely huge one, but that obviously isn't going to prevent things like if someone is raped or, or incest, you know, so there's a lot of these things of why we still need to be fighting um, legislatively. Yes, we have the underground networks in place. There's a ton of people like myself who support people and getting access. There's a ton of nonprofits that fly people across the country. You know, there's a ton of that stuff that's building up. And, and honestly, I feel that these bands made all of these support systems stronger. They made the community have to step up. There was no other option. And so because the communities have stood up and said, we're making sure people get access no matter what, they're putting such amazing systems in place that are still going to be there after we get our rights back. So when we get our reproductive rights back, we're still going to have these super strong communities that are going to continue to support each other, continue to take care of each other, and even more people will be able to get um, safe legal legal access and not have to have a legal risk. You know, like no one should be have to take a legal risk just to have a medical procedure, period. It should never be illegal to get the health care that you need. That's... yeah. Never. It, it just shouldn't so, be illegal. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It shouldn't be illegal to get the health care that you need. So where do you think the most effective, uh, what I'm picturing is like a soft spot, right? Where do you think the most effective points of address are right now in the political landscape? If somebody's like, okay, I can't do abortion, do the work for whatever reason, but I can be politically active, what should they be doing? Well, if they're if they're that passionate, they should be running. Uh, I tell people all the time: if you're really mm-hmm. passionate for social justice, run. Um, if you can, you know, um, it's definitely we. There's a lot of places where we need more people to run. There's rural areas where there is nobody running against people who are extremists, which is something that happened in Idaho with this guy named Scott Herndon. He is a very radical extremist. Like his first day in office, he wanted to remove. Move the exceptions for rape and incest from the abortion bans. His first what, day in office. He, in office for what? What was his position? He became a state senator and he had nobody who ran against him. So, so we need so people me, to run. Let me sidetrack you a little bit here yeah. because this is one of the conversations that I've had over and over. Um, for folks who have been listening to me for a long time, you all know that I have lived in both very rural and very urban places. I've lived in Chicago. I've lived in a town of less than a thousand people in Maine, like back and forth across that line. So, so I frequently have conversations with people in urban areas. Like when I was living in the Bay area, I would say to people, if you want to change people's minds, you got to go become their neighbors. You got to move to one of those places and you got to like borrow cups of sugar and share your snowblower and like push someone out of a ditch, carry rope and carry tow rope in your pickup truck. And that's Mm -hmm. how you start to change, change attitudes. Because I was in Maine when, um, when equal marriage passed in Maine before it passed nationally. Mm. And it was, it was entirely based on -on one-on-one relationships, those deep, like small town 
you know, you see a car drive by and it looks like a generic car. It's not like a standout car. It's like, you know, the maroon red 1997 Subaru wagon that everybody's mm-hmm. got. But you know that that's Joni and Joni's on her way to pick up her kid. Like that mm-hmm. size town. Yeah. And the horror and shock and disgust and resistance that I encounter when I say that to people in cities, especially liberal cities, is astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's real, but it's, an, it's astonishing. I say, okay, so take 20 of your friends. Don't go by yourself, but like take 20 of your friends if you've got privilege, if it's safe for you to do that, and go move somewhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That you can make a difference. That you you can like you can't complain about how they're voting in Iowa if you're not in Iowa, mm-hmm. like being yeah. in community with people in Iowa. Yeah. And but obviously that's how you become positioned to run in a small yeah. town where there's nobody opposing a terrible state senator. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about living in I- Idaho? Yeah. So I'm a born and raised Idahoan. Born in Nampa. I'm currently now in Washington due to legal reasons. That's a whole other story. Um, but um, I currently live um, in Washington, but I am born and raised in Idaho. My grandma worked in the fields and retired as a potato at a potato factory. My grandpa was a janitor for the Nampa School District for over 35 years. Um, come from, you know, working class. My whole family is leftist. Um, you know, my my grandma. Grandpa is black. My stepdad's Japanese. One half of my family is Mexican. The other, you know, so we're very mixed. And so my family, I got pretty lucky by kind of being raised more with leftist ideologies, you know, Um, and which I think was good, even though like my town was mostly like a red town, you know, like there was a lot of Mormon people in our town, a lot of heavy religious um, influence in our town, you know, like they'd be like trying to pray at school lunch. And I'm like, you're not allowed to do that. You know, (laughs) like I'd be like, get out of here, teacher. You know, I was that, I was that kid. Okay. They didn't like me. I was the one, I was hosting protests in my school. I was the vice president of my school. Like I was like, mm -mm." like, I mean, I've always been about this. I'm like, I'm making this school better, you know, (laughs) like I'm that person. And, um, and anyways, like, you know, I come from a small town and, and being raised in a place like that, like the, the school board elections matter, you know, like, like it really does because like, if you're voting people onto the school board and those people hate gay kids, that makes a huge difference on how gay kids are going to experience school, you know? And so the small elections really do matter. And I get a little bit frustrated with, you know, like a lot of these like baby anarchists who are like, oh, well, we don't vote, like all this sort of stuff. And I'm just like, you do know that they're rapidly banning books from schools, right? Like you need to vote in the school board election. I don't care if you don't have kids or not. My kids have been homeschooled their whole lives and I still vote in the school board elections, right? Like I want to make sure the right people are in there. You know what I mean? These kids are our future, you know? And so a lot of times people, they don't think that, you know, those small elections matter. They only vote for like the president or whatever. Like they don't really vote for the smaller elections that are in their local communities or even know how to. I mean, honestly, some people don't even know how to. They haven't even done that much research. And then they're complaining like, oh, my town sucks. Oh, they banned a bunch of books. Oh, now they're banning drag shows. Like all this. And I'm just like, y'all didn't vote. You know, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, Who's you know, they? So and how did they get that power? 
Yeah, yeah. They those people got power somehow. Whether it was going by door knocking, like, and there's a lot of ways that we can help legislators in like red states. Like, you can door knock. They will pay you to door knock. You can make seventeen dollars an hour going door knocking, promoting a politician that actually stands on principles that that you align with. Like, people can actually do that, and a lot of people don't know that they can. They can work on campaigns. Like, I was like, if Bernie Sanders is running, I'm volunteering to work on his campaign. You know, like, because I love Bernie. You know, like. I voted for Bernie every time. So yeah, I never voted for Hillary. I didn't vote for Biden. I, I wrote Biden. I, I wrote Bernie's name in there. <laughs> but like, you know, like I like I tell people all the time, I say I, I am very much like I don't like the system of the of our de- democratic system, which I don't even really think it's democratic because basically all of the um, corporations pretty pretty much own all the politicians. So I guess it really isn't technically for the people. It's for the corporations. But I don't like the system either. I hate it. I I was reading anarchist, anti-capitalist zines when I was like 14 years old, right? Like, I don't like any of this stuff. However, I know the game that we're in. And I'm not stupid enough to act like I'm not a player in this game. I am a player in this game. I'm born and raised in Idaho. I'm, I'm a player in the game. And I'm here. And I'm going to make sure I play the game to the best of my ability, right? And so... And so, like I said, I get frustrated because there's all these like anti-voters like the voting doesn't even matter. And they're like, there's like this thread that I'm in that's like a local Idaho thread. And all these people are so like against voting. Right. And then but then when they were trying to pass the bills um, there for um, for um, re- uh, removing gender affirming care for minors, they're all like, oh, call the governor, call the governor's office. I said. Okay, so you care about calling the governor's office now, but you didn't care about voting last year? I'm like, oh, make it make sense. I was like, make it make I was like, I was like those two things aren't connected. You, you could have had a different governor. I was so confused. Like, I literally had, like, the most confused face. I'm like, so you're calling the governor and leaving him voicemails now, but you didn't vote. Like, I'm like, I'm just confused. But, you know, like some people don't want to, right? That's obviously their right to not vote. I know people who don't vote. I think it's weird. But, you know, because I'm like, I'm pretty sure my ancestors fought for this to be able to vote. But, you know, whatever. Um, and I just feel like a lot of people, they they get maybe just so, like, disheartened that they haven't seen enough progress or they expect progress to be really rapid when our democratic process is slow. Kind of like how a legal system is slow. Like, it takes time. Like, it, it's not something that like oh my gosh just a miracle happens overnight you know it it, like the process hasn't worked that way you know like like black people didn't get rights just by snapping their fingers you know like it took time it was like years and years before they got the right to vote you know what i mean like it was years and years before the women got the right to vote you know like like things take time you know years and years before you know gay marriage was legalized right like it doesn't happen overnight okay and let's talk about like how much strategy is involved in this conservative movement that's taking over so many states right now? Like that is, that was 50 years in the making. It's a marriage of the Republican party and the Southern Baptist convention. Like it is, it is not an overnight anything. This has been my entire lifetime. I'm about to turn 48. It, this is my entire lifetime. People have been working on this and planning it and diligently putting stones and stepping stones in place so mm-hmm. that this could happen. Yeah. And the left has not been keeping up. No, absolutely but, not. And we cannot afford, uh, my opinion, yeah. we cannot afford to not participate in the system just because we don't like it. Yeah, 
Yeah, just because you don't like something doesn't mean you you just automatically, like, I mean, I didn't like public school. I hated it, but I still had to go to school because I needed to get my diploma. You know, like, sometimes you just have to play the game, you know, <laughs> like, even if it's, even if the game sucks, you still got to play it. And so it, it is definitely an interesting thing that I see a lot. And especially it's, it's more like in like, you know, anarchist type of like circles, which I tend to be around because I'm, you know, a punk person. So, you know, like I tend to be around them and I'm always just like, okay, just roll my eyes, you know, because <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, we, we need to be participating. And like I said, and even in the smaller elections, like the, like I said, school board elections are so massive right now because they're trying to ban all the books. I said, if you look at how fascism like started in Germany, they started off banning the books and harassing all the teachers. I mean, that was literally yeah, what they, they were doing. And now even like in Idaho, even at the college level, they're trying to ban, you know, learning about racism and things at the colleges are adults. They can choose what class they take. Like they're literally adults. These are adult humans who even have the right to vote because they are now adults officially and they can't choose what class they take at school. Like no. this is crazy. It's, it's, there's so much wrong with what's happening right now. And that's, I think, what prompted me to kind of shift my podcast and be like, okay, I'm going to do interviews again. Because <laughs> I can talk and talk and talk. But the fact is that I know so many people who are actively engaged in, in changing the story somehow, mm-hmm. right? We're all creating the story. We're all living the story. And I think I have so many people around me right now, including myself sometimes, who are just like, drowning in despair, Mm -hmm. the sense of futility, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of we can't fix anything, climate change horizon is over. And while we're at it, you know, COVID has taken over the universe. And like all of those things are true to some extent. And also Mm -hmm. we can't afford, we can't afford to just give up. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, I think one of the other real challenges is that art has been limited by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. In such a way that it's been harder to get pieces out there that really help people envision a different ending than the one that looks obvious mm-hmm. or a different future than the one that looks obvious. And and so I want to bring forward narratives and stories and people that are about, I mean, it's sort of hope punk, but it's like it's mm-hmm. this idea that that if we're if we are currently writing the narrative we better like get out our pens and our Sharpie markers and our cans of spray paint and write mm-hmm. some better narrative than what's going on here because this blank white corporate wall needs something on it. Mm-hmm. That's not a blank white corporate wall that we're all going to run into. Yeah, I agree. And it, we, it, it, it can be hard to not get into despair. Like I, I get a pe- people ask me is a lot of like, how do you have hope? You know? And And I say like, well, it really just is helping one person at a time. You know, like my grandma was an alcoholic. She ended up quitting drinking around the time that I was born and became a leader in the AA movement in Nampa, Idaho. She sponsored everybody. She would let people crash on her couch. She was always helping people. She was in her garden. She'd be picking food, you know, giving people tomato, like, hey, you need tomatoes. Hey, you need cucumbers. Like, I saw the values that my grandma had. And, you know, when I got my bright pink mohawk in high school, she took me to the, you know, Sally's Beauty Supply and was buying me hairspray for my mohawk (laughs) and, you know, was always like, 
super supportive of anything I did. And even if my ideas were a little bit different than hers, you know, she brought me to AA meetings. You know, even I was like really young. I was like seven, eight years old and she would be bringing me to AA meetings and people would be telling me these stories of their struggles and things that they wanted, you know, they want to support with. And, and my grandma would do whatever it took to support those people. And so I was really blessed to have like a really good example of a person who really wanted to help people. Well, part of the reason was, as my grandma said, for all the years that she was bad, she had to make up for them to be good so she could go to heaven. <laughs> so... She really wanted okay. to make up for all the years she was bad because when she was an alcoholic, she was a very bad person at that time. But then around the time I was born, restorative justice is a thing. She changed her life around and decided to spend her life helping and serving people. And, you know, I saw that as an example and, and that really instilled something in me that has made me know that it's just about serving. Just focus on serving. If I serve one person in a day, then I am making this world better. And if every single person went out and served one person a day, like imagine how how much change we can have in the society, whether that's even if it's just holding a door for a person, right? Smiling at a person, waving at your neighbor, you know, like bringing your neighbor some bread or tea or, hey, I have some extra bananas. You need some? You know, like whatever it is, those sorts of things really actually do make a difference. And, you know, with the way that I'm serving people, it is a little bit more intense, right? Abortion is messy. Um, So, but I have the capacity to do that. I energetically, I've always had the capacity to serve a lot of people at once. And I know that's not everybody, you know, like I'm a, like, I mean, I had courses with thousands of people in it at a time, you know, like I, I can handle a large capacity of helping people at a time. Not everybody can do that. So if you're not a person that can like be like, oh, I can't help a lot of people do small things, even if it's just educating yourself about a topic. Even if it's just listening to a podcast like this, you know, like, like those things actually matter. And I think sometimes we forget like how much just even educating ourselves or reading a book on a topic or learning about prison reform or, or whatever it is, you know, like, like learning about those things does help, you know? And so we also need to, you know, self-reflect too of what we're doing with ourselves, right? Taking care of ourselves. (laughs) That's a whole thing right there. You know, healing your own generational trauma, So you're not passing it all down to your kids, you know, (laughs) like, you know, like all that sort of stuff, all those little things add up and matter. And and it, it continues to give me hope every single time a person, you know, messages me on my secure line and they're needing help. I know that one piece of work that I did, did its job, whether that was passing out a piece of literature, that whether it was making an Instagram post, whatever it was of how that person found me, I know that that work worked. It did it. It proved it. Because they found you. Because they found me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's that ridiculous, like, overtold starfish story over and over and over again. The one about the kid who's walking down the beach and throwing starfish back into the ocean. And somebody says, look at the, like, thousands and thousands of starfish on this beach. It's not like you can get them all back into the ocean. And the kid picks up a starfish and throws it in the ocean and said it made a difference to that one. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. Perfect, perfect analogy. <laughs> because that that's how I see this. Because I know I can't help everybody. I know that I can't. That it would be physically impossible for me to help every single person who needs access to an abortion. It completely impossible. But we have a collective of people doing this. We have tons of organizations and nonprofits. We have the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and all these organizations fighting the legal battles for us. You know, we have all of these groups doing things and it all makes it all together makes a big difference. 
So that's why to me, it's like, well, if every single person did even one little thing, it all adds up. It all adds up. And honestly, if we stop eating our own, that will make us so much more effective. Mm -hmm. The amount of, of people getting mad because whatever somebody else is doing isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. Instead of recognizing that we're all pulling in the same general direction, yep. For me, anyway, it's really frustrating because I'm like, yeah, okay. So what that person is doing isn't perfect, but it's a lot closer to what I want to have happen than like what's going on in the government in Florida right now. Yeah, I don't like what's going on in the government in Florida right now. This person is is you know like maybe I would tweak what they're doing a little bit, but also maybe their messaging is reaching people that my messaging isn't reaching Mm -hmm. because I'm a little too close to the subject or I'm a little too like in the activist space and somebody else is a little less in the activist space is using language that maybe isn't approved of in my inner circles, but it's saying what it needs to say to a group of people that I'm not reaching. Like we all have our message to give and we all have our audience to reach. Yeah, absolutely. And I've gotten a lot of criticism because I I I do sometimes a little bit of dark dark humor that people don't always like or like I, you know, make fun of, you know, politicians or like call them bad names. I cuss quite a lot on my live stream. Um, you know, so there's people that kind of get frustrated with that and and sometimes I'm just like, you know, like I'm just me. Like I I I if you want somebody that's going to be super hardcore politically correct, go talk to Planned Parenthood. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, because that's that that's their thing, you know, but it isn't mine. You know, I'm going to be me and I'm going to get the point across how I need to get it across, you know, and if someone is some freaking Nazi asshole chud, I'm going to call him a Nazi asshole chud, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like it's just how I'm going to be, you know, and not everybody agrees with that. Like we had people that were really upset, like during one of our protests, because we were saying, fuck Brad Little. He is the governor of Idaho. And we were like chanting that. And, you know, a person afterwards sent us a message on the Instagram and was like, well, like there's kids there, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's a protest. Like, you know, like, why are there even kids there to begin with? You know, like, and like, I mean, if you bring your kids to a protest, you got to be prepared for protest culture, protest language, protest spaces. We can't dial back any more than we can dial back pride so that everybody feels comfortable there. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. Yep. The point of a protest is to make people uncomfortable. Yep, exactly. And, and then, like, if you want to send your your most, you know, sweater set and pearls representative to be on, you know, probably not my podcast. My podcast isn't that buttoned down. But there are podcasts, there are media spaces mm-hmm. where that's the person you want representing your cause. So send them. I am yep. extremely pragmatic, especially about things like that. I – um one of one of the many hats I wear is that I'm an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister, mm-hmm. and I used to serve parishes like as a parish minister, and I don't do that anymore. But you know, I would sit down, and I still do sometimes sit down with my white straight cis male colleagues of a certain age and say, "Listen, there's stuff you can say, and there's stuff I can say." There's stuff mm-hmm. I can say and it'll have more credibility. There's stuff you can say that'll have more credibility. Let's talk about who's going to carry which messages to which audience before mm-hmm. we start doing this in public. And the first few times I did that, people were really shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, listen, I can't st-. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I never get to not think about this. I mm-hmm. always have to think about where my voice carries more weight and authority and where my voice doesn't. And so let's do this strategically. Let's make sure that whichever one of us needs to say the thing so that it gets out where it needs to go, says it. And that means that some of us should be cursing and some of us should be like 
very buttoned down and very like you could take me into a library story hour and it would be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of those things are necessary. Both of those kinds of messaging are necessary. And both of those energetic presences are necessary. Yeah. Like if, if all we have is the sweater set people, then the sweater set people keep the Overton window really small. Yeah, absolutely. But when ACT UP comes on the scene, I'm old enough to remember the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when when ACT UP comes on the scene and starts doing die-ins with blood in the middle of the street, mm-hmm. suddenly the gays in their button-down shirts and sweater sets look pretty, pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need. Yeah, exactly. And it always it always cracked me up at all of the rallies that Idaho Abortion Rights hosted is we would have like one speaker who's like cussing a bunch and then the next is like a political leader, you know, like, <laughs> like, it would just be like, so funny um, to see the different people. And then like one person would be like a doctor, the next person is a nurse. And like, then the next person is, you know, an activist who's like, yeah, fuck the police, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like, so it's like, you know, just different, you know, people um, attracted different types of energy and we we kind of kept it a little bit mixed because like in Idaho it's like we don't really have like big like different groups of activism it's like all of us work together even though a lot of us are very different from one another Um, Mm -hmm. and at first a lot of people didn't really like how what they considered I guess radical like our collective was Um, but you know we just told them like we're not changing who we are like this was founded by punks you know what I mean like we like this is like this is not like a a space that we're gonna you know be like oh we we need to tone it down and only say PC things and stuff like we just weren't gonna do that I mean there were people that told us to not even have the word abortion in our name and said we should have the word choice I said but it's not always a choice for someone Right. So no, we're not using the word choice. We're using the word abortion because it's not a choice for every person. A person who has an ectopic pregnancy, it's not a choice. It is a necessary procedure for that person. Whether if a person has a fatal fetal abnormality, it's not a choice for them. They need to have that or they will die of sepsis, right? So no, choice. I'm not placating people at all. We're using the word abortion in our name. That's it. Period. Right. We're not going to. It's like saying people should have access to, I don't know, disinfection procedures. Mm-hmm. It's not a choice. It's a disinfection procedure. Like, yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You, sometimes it's just not a choice, right? Like, there's people who may want to have kids, but because of their disabilities, they're unable to. Right. Like, so I'm like, it's not a choice for every single person. Everybody deserves access to it. So we're Idaho abortion rights. That's it. That's our name. We're not, we're not changing it. And we had a lot of people, especially during our first protest, that were just like, no, we're call- you should call it choice. But I said, no. So the pro-choice rhetoric has actually used against us because it makes it out like every single abortion is just a person who like isn't being responsible or isn't taking birth control or isn't Oh, like, I didn't feel like it. You know? You know, like, like as, as if it's just like, you is they literally even say that abortion is used as birth control when it's not they most of the time it's because birth control failed <laughs> like right. over 60 percent of the people who who have abortions are already in a long-term relationship they know what birth control is they've been using it you know so something happened right you know so it's like hello like so but they don't want to hear that because it's been pro-choice 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 being preached for the past 40 years or whatever and now it's like no like no we are pro-abortion that's what we're pro 
we want people to have, be able to get access to it. And it, right. it is sometimes hard to make like a firm stance like that because there's a ton of other nonprofits that call themselves blah, blah, blah choice or whatever, you know, tons that are like that. And some of them have gotten mad because in like the new, in like the news and stuff, they say, oh, you know, pro-abortion, blah, blah, blah. People get mad. And I said, no, you are pro-abortion. If you're pro-choice, you are pro-abortion. You think people should have access to it. So like, why are y'all getting mad about semantics? You know, like it's a word, like chilled out, you know? Um, but also the word abortion shouldn't have shame around it. We need to be using that word. We need to be saying that word. And it like, it should be where, you know, when teenagers are told like, hey, there's nothing shameful if you ever have an abortion in your life. It's a common thing. Like one in every four women have an abortion in your life. We should be able to tell that to a teenager and say, hey, that's nothing to be shameful if, if you know, you're 20, 25, 30, 40, whenever, you know, like if you have an abortion in your life, there's nothing to be ashamed about it. That's the type of messaging that needs to start getting out into the world because they've, they've, the far right has done so good with their rhetoric of shaming people over a normal medical procedure. It's normal. Well, and it serves in it commerce. Serves on, it serves on the larger um, body shame rhetoric that is yeah. everywhere all the time, especially yeah. for AFAB folks. Yeah. And, yeah. and so when you combine that, like they didn't have to build that from scratch. They found a thing that was already in place and then they yeah. built on top of it messaging yeah. that, that emphasized that kind of shaming. Yeah. And, purity culture. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. <laughs> so if people are going to leave this interview with like, one takeaway of like, this is the thing that I heard that is going to help me stay on track, help me stay motivated, help me stay out of despair. What would you say that should be? I would say find community of people that have the same type of mindset, whether it's online in a Discord community or a Facebook group, or whether it's in person, if you could get on Zoom calls with people, connect with people, because I know a lot of people probably listening might live in a rural area and might be like, well, it's hard to find somebody that has similar ideas as me. There's a lot of groups out there, right? Whether it's in your local community or not. Another great way is to actually volunteer, volunteer working for different organizations, whether it's domestic violence groups, whether it's mutual aid groups, whether it's harm reduction, whether it's in the reproductive space. Like there's a lot of organizations around where you can find like-minded people to spend time with. Because when you're with those like-minded people and you know that you're doing something to, to make the world better, like you get hope automatically. Like it starts filling you up because you're like, wow, we actually helped 10 people this week, like get access to Narcan or we helped, you know, 10 people this week get a pregnancy test. Like that sort of stuff really, really helps in making sure that you don't go just into those deep, dark, you know, corners of despair, you know, sitting in the corner, hiding under a blanket, you know, like it, it can be really hard, but I know that it has, you have to connect. Community is really everything. Community is healing. Community, like just being able to have the solidarity with other people, be like, oh my gosh, I'm so relieved that somebody believes the similar things that I believe, that somebody believes in social justice as much as I do, right? Like 
getting around those people is is so huge. And now that I live in Washington and most of my my peeps that I built around my community are in Boise, I felt myself so depressed like when I first moved here because I was so used to just being able to go into downtown Boise and like there were my peeps and you know mm-hmm. like I was like so now I'm kind of like building like more friendships here locally but it it definitely you know made it made a huge difference. I noticed it when I moved away. Like I was like, "Oh my gosh, now I live in a town with 3,000 people. Like what the heck am I going to do, you know? <laughs> so completely different like environment, right? So yeah. um, um, which Boise's not that big, but you know, like it, but it's not compared to here. People. Yeah. Compared to here, it's very different. Um, and so, so yeah, so it, it's, it takes connecting with people. We really need to stay connected. And I th- honestly, with the way they're making things so divisive, that's on purpose because they know when we are connected to each other, that we are powerful. We are powerful, powerful, powerful when we are connected and in community with each other. And they do not want us to be in community with each other. That is clearly their goal. That is clearly their goal. They want to divide us as much as possible because they don't want us to have strength. So find that community. Yes, absolutely. I it, When you were talking, I, I couldn't help thinking about the um, the long history of dividing us from each other like all the ways the community mm-hmm. of color being sliced and diced and sliced and diced, you know, yep. um, poor white folks and poor black folks being divided from each other. Like yeah. this is a long, 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 long strategy and, and being in community is what saves us every time. Yep. yep. Absolutely. I mean, I'm in a lot of queer spaces and a lot of the younger members of those queer spaces come in and, you know, they've just come out, they've just figured out they're trans, whatever, and they enter the space and they don't know, they're lost, right? They don't have any of what they had formerly had. And I pick them up, right? I'm Mm -hmm. like, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? How's this going to, you know? And, And they're like shocked. They're shocked that anybody would show up for them like that. And I'm like, no, no, this is how, this is how marginalized people have always survived. This Mm -hmm. is how we do it. But I want to see us move. My dream is to see us move from surviving to like living. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to say thriving, just living, not, not that constant grasping for survival. And the way we do that is with community. So yes, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this interview. This has been Amazing. Is, is there contact information you'd like to leave folks? Where should people look for you, your stuff? Yeah. Um, the best places to find me, I mean, Instagram is definitely where I'm at quite a lot. Um, my name there is just Kimra Luna. I also tweet cu- quite a lot of stuff as well. So if you're into anything around intersectionality, anti-racism work, those sorts of stuff, I tweet pretty heavily on Twitter, um, which my name there is just Kimra Luna on Twitter. And then same thing on um, on Twitch. So if you like to watch live streams, um, we watch a lot of YouTube videos. I react to different videos from everything from environmental racism to talking about unions to um, we do like a whole um, series that is is called uh, Black History Month is every month. So we are always learning more new things about black history all the time. Um, so if you're interested in any of those sorts of topics, uh, follow me on Twitch. Um, it's one of the best ways um, to, to see me um, babble on for hours on end. <laughs> And where do they find you on Twitch? What's your name, your handle on Twitch? Um, just Kimra Luna on there. Okay, again. 
All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I look forward to being in touch with you in other spaces. Yes. Thank you. Take care. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.